Thanks, Alan, and, uh, and the team. It's great to see you, Providence. I hope that you have had a great week, and uh, uh, it is, uh, it's a joy of mine to be here with you this morning as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper this morning and, uh, and, and to have the opportunity uh, to look into His Word for um, a few moments. Uh, I, should, uh, I should start by saying a whole lot can happen in eight days, can it? It's... Uh, it's, um, it's uh, it's amazing, and, and uh, for all the, the, the phone calls and emails and, and prayers, uh, I just want to say uh, thank you. We're uh, in- incredibly grateful. Um, let me say just a, a few things about um, some of these changes. Uh, first is uh, weeks before uh, our own search team uh, called me, um, uh, I was in the office with Alan uh, after he had been called uh, from this church uh, down in Texas, and uh, and so I just uh, began praying uh, with him and for him uh, over the last several months, and and uh, I'll be I'll be uh, totally honest with you. Um, in spite of my complete inability uh, to comprehend uh, God's timing in um, in all of this, uh, I just want you to know that I trust the Lord, and I'm thankful uh, to you, Alan, if you can hear me in the back for your friendship and for your faithfulness uh, to, to, to me and to, to us. Um, last week, as you guys have already heard, and uh, I'm sure most of you were here, uh, uh, the um, Lord uh, has worked over the last several weeks and months. I'm convinced of it. Uh, I'm, uh, if you've read my story on the little pamphlet, or if you've heard me talk through my story, how I grew up with such a tremendous speech impediment, of stuttering, and uh, I couldn't finish sentences, and so for for any assembly of human beings to gather together to say, you know what we should do? Let's have that person get up and speak to us regularly is to me an absolute miracle of God. I, am, uh, I, I, I really do believe that. Um, I've been asked several times this week, uh, so what does it feel like? And um, what it feels like is jumping out of an airplane without a parachute um, is what it feels like, but doing so only after. Um, you've heard God say, jump, because he's promised to be your parachute. And um, I, uh, what I feel is uh, tremendous excitement. Uh, I feel incredibly grateful, humbled. Um, at times I feel terrified. Um, at times I feel totally inadequate. Um, but I'm at total peace because I believe the Lord told me to jump. And so, um, and so I'm grateful uh, for all these things. Uh, if you have with you a Bible, I want to ask you to turn with me this morning to 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 4 through 10. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible with you, if you want to just find one and see it in front of you, uh, there should be one near. And if you don't have one at home, uh, we would love for you to take that Bible home as a gift. Um, uh, we love the scriptures and think it's important for all of us to be reading them and studying them for ourselves. Uh, I was asked by the elders to uh, sort of uh, speak uh, this month um, before, uh, before you as a church family votes on June 28th um, on uh, sort of the promptings and leadings that God has placed upon my heart. Uh, what is the vision and the mission sort of that I would seek to lead us um, down and, and, and I'm thankful for this opportunity. And where it really begins is our mission as a church family, which, um, which, uh, which is, is something that I'm very, very passionate about. And so what it says is this. It says that we exist to glorify God. 
by introducing all peoples to Jesus Christ and growing them up to love and worship him. And so you notice on the screen that there are several words that are highlighted. And my intent over the next four weeks is to take these words and to expand upon them of what that would look like for us. The first one is, uh, is, is this idea of what this whole message here is framed around. And it's, it's really the foundation. All, right? all of the rest of the words really talk about what we're going to do as a people of God to do this. But it really is important to identify what God has done in us and for us before we ever contemplate what we're going to do as a church family. And so it all starts with belonging before we get to behaving. And so what we talk about here this morning is this idea of belonging. What has God done in us as a people, as individuals, and then as he has collected us and combined us together to make this thing called providence uh, here in Raleigh? And so what does it look like to exist the to, 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 to truly glorify the Lord. Now, next Sunday night at 4 o'clock, there'll be a town hall meeting, and you'll have the opportunity to come and ask, uh, ask me anything that you'd like uh, publicly, which should be a lot of fun. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, Really, it should be uh, a lot of fun. And then on June 25th, there's a prayer night uh, that I would uh, encourage you uh, to mark on your calendar uh, for that as well. And so, if you would, let's, let's bow, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord for help as we read his word. Father, we come to you uh, this morning amazed at your grace, amazed at your kindness. You have been um, gracious already to allow us to wake up and to live in your world today. And Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that you would open up our eyes to see beautiful things in your word. God, that you would help us to believe what we read is true, that you would help us to understand it and apply it to our life. So God, would you be our teacher? And I pray, God, as as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, that, Lord, that this would not be a demonstration of human wisdom or, or, or speech or, or even persuasion. But, Father, this would be a demonstration of the power of your Holy Spirit at work in each of our lives. As you take our life, you take the scriptures and you merge the two and help us to live in a way that would honor you and bring good to ourselves and others. And so we look to you now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Starting in verse 4, it says this, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So three things here this morning that I want to show you in this text, and they all revolve around God. The first, if you want to take notes, is that God is on an unstoppable mission of making a people to glorify himself. 
And one thing you're probably going to have to endure is I love long points, right? Because all these, all these words, they all matter, okay? This is not a mission that's a risky mission to God. There's no risk of it failing or succeeding. It is an unstoppable mission. The reason is because Jesus himself said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so his mission of what he's about doing and what, what, what a God is actually putting his hands to, if you can say it that way, is, is, is not going to fail. It's a mission to create a people. And you see this throughout the scriptures. And the reason he's creating this people is to glorify himself. And I want to show you this within the scriptures. God's word tells us that it is his will, his desire, is that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of his glory just as the waters cover the sea. So as you and I, we stand on the, on the beach and we look out over the ocean and we see just the incredible expanse. God says, this is what I desire. That just as water blankets the entire sea to where it's the only thing that you can see, it's the only thing you can imagine. He says, my desire is that my glory and the knowledge of my glory would literally sit upon a, as a blanket upon the hearts of every single human being in the entire world. That I would be glorified among peoples that I have created. And this is his desire. And this desire, at one point in time, it seemed all but threatened because man sinned. And when man sinned, it's amazing what happened. Is sin made our heart unresponsive and unimpressed with God. Unresponsive means we were dead. You poke him and we didn't move. God poked and prodded spiritually and there was, there was no response. Sin made us literally calloused to the hands of God. To the imprint upon creation. And we began worshiping other things and acknowledging other things and being more impressed with what he created than the creator himself. And this is the reality of what sin does. It literally blinds our eyes to the greatness of Jesus Christ. And instead of crushing us, what God did is amazing. It says that he promised a rescue. And when you think about what's at God's disposal, that he has everything that there ever is, everything you know about and you don't know about at his disposal for anything he wants and anything he wants to do. When you think about the method that he went about this mission of being glorified and rescuing us, to me, it's all but a little bit crazy. It, 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 I wouldn't have picked this way. I probably would pick, okay, if I'm God, I'm going to rip open the heavens. I'm going to stick my head through it and say, all right, everybody, look, I'm real. Everyone, look up here. Here I am. I really am real. I'm holy, so you be holy. Stop that over there. You know? and, and I'd be calling things out. I said, all right, you guys have a good night. You know, close it back up, and I'd be done. You know, I'll rescue you. I've, like, my knowledge of my glory would be seen around the world, and that's not what God did. Instead, what we're told is God said, I'm going to make a people. And I'm going to take my glory and I'm going to actually display it to a people on the earth. I'm going to attach my name upon that people on the earth. And then I'm going to seek to glorify my name through that people on the earth. And this was his plan. And so he began this with a man named Abraham. And when God found Abraham, Abraham was, was literally worshiping rocks and wood. And so it's not like that he was this... this this bastion of righteousness on the earth. And God says, you know, I need to use him because, I mean, this is fair. No, no, no. God, in mercy and grace, he comes and he goes, you don't know me, you don't worship me, but I'm God, and I'm going to display my glory to you. And he made him four promises. He said, I'm going to bless you. 
I'm going to give you a piece of land on the earth. Because look up into the sky. Count the stars. Because I'm going to give you a number of descendants that outnumber those stars. And then the fourth is just, just remarkable. He says, one of those descendants will be the savior of the world. The rescuer that's going to come. It's going to be born of woman. It's going to crush the head of the serpent. It's going to restore all people in faith to God. And what we're told in the New Testament is in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. And this was Jesus. And Jesus came from heaven to earth. And Jesus lived on this earth. And yet he lived righteously unlike you and unlike me. He gave perfect obedience to the law. And after doing all that, he went to a cross according to his own will to die for my sin and for yours and for the sin of the whole world. And he bled and was broken for us. He was buried and then he rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, his disciples saw and believed. And he told them to go tell people. And they went. And everywhere they went, every city they went to, more people believed what they kept saying is that Jesus died and he rose from the dead. And every place where people were believing, God went and he said, all right, I'm going to collect you together in this little place over here. And I'm going to take you and I'm going to collect you. And this is what it says here. It says that we were once dead stones, unresponsive to God. He made us living stones, regenerated our heart, gave us a new engine. Right? That's what regeneration is. It's not turning a new leaf so that we're a better us. It's giving us a new engine so that we can be different. It's, I'm going to regenerate you. And I'm going to collect you together, he says, to become a spiritual house. You see, you're just a stone. You're not a house. This entire passage, every time that you read the word you, it's not singular, it's plural. He's not talking about you. He's talking about you. Literally us, peoples, that we were once stones. And now all of a sudden God took that stone that cannot form a house by itself. And he begins collecting these stones and making the spiritual house. And why? So that we would be a holy nation, literally a people for his possession, that we might declare the excellencies of him who rescued us out of darkness and brought us into light. This is what he's always been about. He's building a people for his own glory. You see, so as a result of this, when you think about this, this, the church is the most remarkable people group on the entire earth. She alone, God calls the bride of Christ. Literally, the people upon whom Jesus Christ has set his affection forever. The body of Christ. The people of whom God has set his mission upon forever. The household of God. So that if anyone wants to know, who are the people God on the earth? Well, those are the people who are in the local churches. The household, the family of God. The pillar of truth. The people of whom God literally has entrusted the scriptures to be teaching, sharing, speaking God's word here on the earth. She is the only institution on the earth that God has promised to sustain forever. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, is one of the most amazing verses to me about just the mystery of the church. This is what it says. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The word manifold literally means many or varied. 
oftentimes it's used in the idea of color. And so it's, 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 it's almost like a stack upon words. This idea of manifold. It's many, various, so many to count colors. And so if you think about a canvas, a huge canvas, and on that canvas, God himself is the, is the artist. He's the painter. And he has, he, he has literally painted on this canvas your redemptive story. Where you were before Christ, how you came to faith in Christ, and what he's doing in your life since coming to faith in Christ. And he has literally painted your story on this canvas. But amazing, it's not just your story, it's mine too. And everyone who has ever come to faith in Jesus Christ, ever is in faith in Jesus Christ, or ever will be, he has literally painted that story on this amazing, huge portrait. He says that this is why he did this, is to make something known. You see, here on the earth, it really is important that God has literally attached his glory to the local church in order to bear witness to his wisdom on the earth. But the earth is not the only place about which he cares about his glory. Because we're also told that he is the king. He is the, literally the Lord of everything over the earth, on earth, and under the earth. You say, well, what, what are those? Well, this verse speaks to it. Did you see it? He says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to who? The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, who are these rulers and authorities? Literally, they're angels and there's demons. Angels, literally, we're told in 1 Peter, are looking down upon the earth and they're marveling at the mercy of God in the painting that they see. They say, how could God save him? How in the world could God take someone like that and bring them into his family forever? They're marveling, they're worshiping God through the wisdom that they see in the church on the earth. And not only that, but under the earth, we're told that there's demons. And the demons, at the very moment that they assumed victory, was the very moment when they look upon this painting that they now recognize their defeat. And so what Jesus longs for, and what God longs for, is for the name of Jesus Christ, for him to be glorified. And how he's choosing to glorify it is by making a people called the church on the earth that will bear witness to his glory, not only on the earth, but in heaven and in hell. Jesus alone would receive all the glory. And this is what Paul is reverberating in his own heart in Ephesians chapter 3, near the end of it. What do you, uh, he, he, um, he says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly more than all we can ask or imagine, and he says, Now to him be all. All glory in the church, both now and forevermore. You see, there's only one name that is above all other names. We were built for glory. We were built for His glory forever. So as you think about the future and you think about, well, Brian, what's on your heart? One of the things is I hope to lead us in to be unshakably committed to the glory of God. And because we want to be unshakably committed to the glory of God, I also seek to lead us to be unshakably committed to the local church here on the earth because he has established and he has attached, he has literally stapled his glory to the church on the earth. And what this means is that calling us 
to serve the church, calling for us to sacrifice for the church, to sacrifice our will, to sacrifice our preference, to sacrifice our demand to be right in order that the church might be unified, that the church might be healthy. Well, the second thing that I want to show you in this text about God is that God supplies his people with everything needed to glorify himself. Literally everything needed to glorify himself. And this is a beautiful thing when you think about it. It's also a little bit daunting. Look at verse 5. In verse 5 it says this, You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. We've already talked about that. Now why? To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now the very fact that he's talking that here that Peter brings up this word acceptable literally means there's a possibility that we could offer God a sacrifice that's not acceptable. Is there are things that we could put our hands to here on earth inside his church that would not be acceptable to God. You see, God's work has to be done God's way. This really, like, you know, we're so used to in our world having our way. You know, the whole world is like Burger King. But except for the church, we don't get to do things our way here. We do things his way. And you look through the scriptures. This is important. Is that God never rewards creative missions. He only rewards faithfulness to his mission. He's not looking for us to be creative and think of what we could do as a church. He's asking us to read and obey. This is why I built you. This is why you're here. This is why I've assembled you. Now go and do what I've asked you to do. And so we don't need to be creative in what God has asked us to do. We simply need to be faithful. To do his work his way. You see, just as taproots... You know, they supply nutrients to the tree so that the fruit on the tree can be acceptable. So God in his mercy has promised to supply the church with everything that we need so that what we do and put our hands to can be an acceptable offering of fruit that he finds pleasant. So what are some of these things that God has already given us to help us so that we as a people called providence can bring to God a sacrifice that's acceptable to him. Well, the first thing, the first resource that God has given to us, which is remarkable, is the authority of Jesus to govern us. We are not here on the earth like a ship without a rudder, just bounding about throughout the sea with no direction. That we have a leader. Colossians chapter 1, he says that Christ is the head of the church. The elders, the pastor, the pastors, the deacons, the people, we're not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of his church. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20 says it this way. You are members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. So Jesus is our cornerstone. He's the head. The cornerstone was the stone that was literally laid first so that all of the rest of the stones could be built around that in a way that was plumb, in a way that was straight and upright. It was the first stone that was laid in order to build your entire house upon that one. And Jesus is the cornerstone. And what it says is that he has authority 
over the entire church because he's the head of the entire church. And his governance was mediated, we're told through this verse, through the apostles and the prophets. And so when Jesus left the earth and ascended into heaven, it's not like the church was without his direction because he was speaking to the apostles and the apostles were writing stuff down. And this is why it matters to us. The 12 apostles, Paul, they're not here with us right now. They can't stand up and say, okay, this is what Jesus wants for you. And then they walk off the stage. No, but what we have is the recording of the apostles that's preserved for us in the scriptures. And so what this means is simply this, is that, is that when you look at the New Testament, it is the blueprint for the church. The teachings in the New Testament, how you build a church, what the church should do, what is the mission of the church, it's all found right there. And so he's going to continue to govern us as a people through his word, which is such an amazing gift. And so one of the things that I, I, I should say, I hope I don't need to, but I probably do, even after 17 years of being here, the fact is you need to hear this from me today is that, is that as we move forward in the future, this is the Lord's will, is that we're going to continue to make Christ central in everything that we do that he is going to be worshipped, that he is going to be shared, he's going to be preached, he's going to be loved, and we're going to yield to him because he is the king. Now, one of the things that really should be said, which is just a total affirmation, one of the men that literally ranks in my top three of men that I know, a man that I want to emulate in my life, and that's David Horner, is that one of the things that he has done, among all of the things that he has done well, I believe the most central thing that he has done, that God is going to smile upon him, is that he has demanded that Jesus Christ be centralized within this church. That he is preached. It doesn't matter what's happening. We talk about Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the king over heaven and earth. And so he, 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 he's, he's done faithfulness. People have asked, oh, so come love feast. Like, are you going to play Silent Night? And, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure David's going to take those shoes with him. But, but, but these shoes, right... These shoes of seeking to say, you know what, we want to make sure Jesus Christ is honored above all is one that I hope that I'm able to emulate well in, in, uh, that I've seen modeled through David. I think the second thing that, that God in his grace has supplied to the church, I've already sort of touched on it, is the word of God to instruct us. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I believe that the Bible is the only divinely inspired, written revelation that is infallible and inerrant of who God is, who we are, and how we are to live in his world. There's a lot of people, and they approach the idea of the will of God, like, God, here's my life, now how are you going to bless it? This is my world, now what can I do so that you bless this world? And that's a wrong, that's a wrong perspective, because the fact is, is you don't have a world. And neither do I. Instead of asking God, would you bless my world? What we need to be asking is, God, how do I live in yours? How do I live in your will, participating in your mission of what you're doing so that my life is not like a sandcastle that's waiting high tide? Like those that build a kingdom upon their own hands for their own glory, it all falls away. Nothing endures except for the kingdom of God. And the word of God tells us, how do we build upon that? And so when we think about the Bible, the Bible is not an echo chamber by which we speak into it and ask it to reverberate the echoes of our own desires. The Bible is the word of God. 
It's a bar either that we bend over or be broken by. And so we're going to continue to preach the Bible. And you see, the pinnacle of the revelation of the Scriptures is the death and resurrection of Jesus. We call it the gospel. This, 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 where he means good news. That everything from the very front of the Bible and everything from the very back of the Bible, they all point at this most pivotal moment in the history of the world, and that is when Jesus died on a cross, and three days later, he rose from the dead. That changes everything. So what does that mean for us as we move forward? It means that we're going to continue to sing and preach and share the gospel even as our culture grows more resistant to the gospel. It means that we're going to continue to preach the Bible as the final authority for every single matter under heaven. It means, practically, that I believe that we're going to continue to utilize a preaching rotation. And I believe this is important for two reasons. One is it subtly reminds every single one of us to be more dependent upon the Word of God than upon a man. And the second thing it does is it equips the church for the next generation to stand up and lead. And when I think, and not only think about, when I go back and I read sermons of when I was 26, I think 24, 26, something like that, when David said, hey, I want you to do this service. And I look back upon that. That is one of the most humble things that David Horner has ever done. Uh, I'm convinced. I look at it and I think, I don't, I'm pretty sure I would let me get up and do that, but maybe not. I don't know, you know. But the refinement that takes place in our younger leaders to be able to stand before people and have God equip them and challenge them and grow them so that they can lead the church and the next generation is critically important. And so we're going to continue to teach the Bible. The third resource that God gives is the Spirit of God to empower us. You see, we're told the Holy Spirit has power to illuminate and to regenerate and to mobilize and to comfort. And He has promised to give this to churches who pray. I'm convinced that the less acquaintance that we have with the power of the Holy Spirit, the more we rely upon presentation, upon personality, and upon preferences. This is why God, or Christ, while he was on the earth, right before he left, he literally told his disciples, I don't want you to go out, I don't want you to start, I don't want you to start a, a, a whole circuit of teaching and have seminars and all. No, I want you to go and I want you to pray until God's Spirit comes upon you in power. One of the stories that, that literally, it, it, it sort of shakes me at the roots when I think about it, because we all want to succeed in life, is the story of King Asa. You can find this some, at some point, Second Chronicles chapter 14, 15, and 16. But what it says there is that this king, literally, he was king for about 40 years. His first 10 years were total peace, just incredible reform. He was a godly young king and he was seeking to do things God's way and he had God honored him with 10 years of peace and then all of a sudden there was a million man army that marched out in order to wipe the nation of Judah off the map and he looks out and he sees he sees this amazing army and he says God we're 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 dead and literally falls on his face before his army and he says God there is no one but you that can help we're weak and they're strong and then he said you're stronger and ultimately, what we're asking, this is what he says. He goes, God, would you vindicate the honor of your great name? Because your name is attached to this people. And all of a sudden, it says that God went out and fought for them. And they defeated this million-man army with a third of the size of the army. Twenty-six more years pass. No wars. God given peace. He's just reforming things left and right. And all of a sudden, now, in the 37th year of his reign, 
another army comes. And it happens to be as their brothers. The nation of Israel has come down and laid siege upon Judah. And this time Asa doesn't pray. It says that he got proud in his heart. Instead, what he did is he devised a plan. And that plan was to go to the treasury of God, the storehouse, and to take God's money and go off and pay a foreign pagan king to break an alliance so that that king would then go and attack Israel so that Israel would then back off from Judah. And the most devastating thing you read in the whole passage is it worked. It worked. That's the most scary thing to me is it worked. They probably threw him a parade that day. Ace is the best king in the world. Until God sent a prophet, and that prophet came and he says, Listen, Asa, God intended this for his glory and you stole it. Now, why I tell you this is this reason. There is something worse than failing, and that is succeeding at the wrong thing. We literally could put our effort for decades to something that doesn't matter and win. And that terrifies me. And so what that means is we're going to be a people that finds out what the Lord will do if we pray. In many ways, we already have. This has been a praying congregation from its infancy. And I praise God for that. But as we continue to look forward, right, I hope to lead in such a simple way that demands a supernatural explanation for every good thing that we see and experience. See, I, I, I believe it's our intent as sinners to keep standing up into the sight line between God and his people. And I pray to God that he's going to help me duck. That somehow, even in the simplicity of leadership and how we go about doing things, is that we're going to pray like we mean it. And when we do, the only explanation will be, well, God must have done something. Because clearly it wasn't about personality and clearly it wasn't about presentation. God just worked. See, I hope to see every single hour in the upper room booked. We literally have, hun- have, have, have hun- uh, over 100 volunteers now, and there's still about 30 hours that are left open. A place here in this, in this building where folks come and they pray through thousands of requests of our missionaries and our ministries and what's happening in our individual lives. I hope to see literally a prayer gathering during each of our morning worship services happening in the prayer suite. And then I think one other thing, if you want to see what, what might this look like, is I believe it's important at the very beginning of our personal day, at the beginning of our month, as a, as a church family, as an expression to God and to us, to say, God, before we start this month, we're going to pray. And so I hope to lead us in a monthly prayer gathering on the first Sunday nights of each month. I think a fourth resource that God has given us is the presence of godly leaders to guide us. He's entrusted a measure of his authority to a plurality of godly people. And I just simply want to say that I'm thankful for these leaders and look forward to serving them in the days to come. And then the last is the love of God that really seeks to distinguish us. That, that as Jesus said, just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, my grandpa had a, had a uh, cattle um, farm. He was a rancher at one point, a long, long, long time ago out in Texas. And, and um, so we had a brand. You know, and that brand, uh, when it was used, 
it was, it was meant to identify because out in Texas, they just kind of let those cows run. You know, they're kinda, there's not many fences because it's so big. And so if there's any dis- mark of distinction to say, well, whose is that? Is that Smith's or is that Frost? Well, there was a brand. And Jesus said, this is going to be the one thing that really seeks to distinguish my people from all the people in the world, and that is how they treat one another at their point of need, to love one another. The last thing as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, the last major point is that God, what, what's he doing? Is God connects us to this people, his people, when we connect to his son. And only when we connect to his son. This is what he says in verse 4, isn't it? As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. We have to come to him. To come to them, he has to draw You see, Jesus is our cornerstone. And each of these passages speaks to this reality that Jesus Christ literally will become the stone over which we build our life or over which our life will be broken. To trust him is to literally receive new life and to be connected to his covenant people. And did you see in the text what is the only thing we all have in common? It's not our education. It's not where we went to college. It's not where we're from. It's not our skin color. It's not our gender. It's mercy. He says, once you had not received mercy, but now you have. And this is the only thing we all have in common is mercy. You know Christ. Like, we all look different. We drive different things. We work in different places. We're from different places. We think different ways. We have received mercy. And this is what God is doing. He's building a people that is diverse in age, in gender, in race, and in ethnicity, which it should be. We should celebrate and affirm the diversity of people that God is bringing to us. And the reason he's doing this is because he wants to glorify the only king who can rightly call for the worship of all the peoples in the world. And the only thing that we have in common here is we have received mercy. And that's where we come to the Lord's Supper. And so, elders and deacons, if you would come at this time as we prepare to take what God has made available to us. You see, this morning, we literally get to, G- to, to, to glorify Jesus at the table. When Paul said, to him be glory in the church, one of the most unique and... and, and um, And significant ways that we get to do that is to take the Lord's Supper. You see, Jesus told his followers to take this bread and to take this cup as a reminder of his cross and resurrection, but also as a public confession of our faith. So I want you to think about what's about to happen, okay? You guys, most of you have seen a baptism. It usually happens back here, right? Where somebody bears witness to what God has done in their life. And now, no one's being baptized right now. But for each and every one of us, God has given us another way to confess our faith in Christ publicly. And, w- and that is the Lord's Supper. So when you take this bread and you hold it, and when you take this cup and you hold it, if someone were to look at you, What you are silently declaring with your life is, I am in need of a Savior, and Jesus is Him. He is my Savior. He is the one that died for me. And I need Him now as much as I have ever needed Him. He is the only way to the Father. He is the only way, the truth, and the life. And so to take this 
is to recognize that he is your savior. So if you have yet to trust Christ, to trust that he died and rose again and for him to be your savior, we would simply ask you to let these things pass. But if you know Christ and as he's changed your life because you have come to him in faith, then we welcome you to this table. So if you would, let's bow and let's pray together. Garvey.